Gentlemen, thank you for being here for this panel discussion. The conference, the the audience sits in during your talks and they're very polite and they listen and now it's your turn to be very polite and listen to their questions and to, to answer their questions. So I have various questions here and we will just get right into it. This is a question for anyone to answer so any anybody can get in on this one. Several of the speakers have talked about how the law of God is good and that it remains our standard today even under the new covenant. If this is true, how are we to understand passages like Romans 6.14, which tells us we are not under the law, but under grace? One thing we ought to always do is make sure we're quoting the passage accurately. It says, uh, for sin shall not have dominion over you because you're not under the law, but you're under grace. And so it's not a question of being under grace, not law, Therefore, you don't think about sin in the same categories at all. And what Paul's doing there, I'm convinced, is talking about law as a covenant or law as a method of do this in order to live versus the gracious revelation of Christ having kept the law for us. It comes to us as he has done this, in him you live and you get in him by faith. So it's not, uh, not under law so that you don't have to look to commandments to see how to live. It's you don't look to the law covenant as a mechanism to make you right with God. Sin won't have dominion. You still are free from sin both as principle and as a responsibility. You must not let sin have dominion over you. Sin doesn't have dominion over you. It doesn't reign in you any longer. And therefore, you don't submit to it and you fight against it. It's your responsibility. But you do that not so that God will accept you. You do that because you have been graciously rescued by the Lord. Anything else to add? I would be interested if I could ask a question. Just if you two men, uh, you see that uh, law, you're not under law as a covenant, like law covenant, but you're under grace, covenant of grace. Is that how, do you see that operating there? Not that I'm the moderator, sorry. Yeah, I think when I read the book of Romans, I believe they use the law. Paul's using the, the law in many ways, but one of the ways he uses the word law is a shorthand or emblematic of the covenant of works. And so, you know, a lot of times we say the covenant of works is a long three-word sentence, but a lot of times Paul's referring to the covenant of works just real quickly, the law. And that law it means more than just more than the moral law or more than just the Ten Commandments. And it does mean that. We'll talk about that tomorrow, how uh, there's no covenant without the moral law. But it, it means more than just the moral Ten Commandments. It's the whole economy of uh, system that uh, the Jews were under. And we're not under that economy or that system or that covenant and that covenant could not produce righteousness. It, uh, it wasn't made for that purpose. And um, we're under a new economy or cutament, a cutament, covenant. And um, therefore we have the, like I talked about last night, we have the ability, the freedom to live righteous. We can obey that law. So it's not a different standard. It's the same standard. 
the same standard of righteousness. So we're not antinomians. Let's throw the law away. We want to keep that thing. It's holy. It's good. Everything about it is pure. It's, it's a question of ability. It's a question of how can we keep this thing? How can we obey it? And um, sin shall not have dominion. Well, what is sin? It's the law. The law tells us what sin is and what sin is not. So it's not throw the law away. We're not under the law. Well, what does that mean? We're free to do what we want? No, we're not free to do what we want. We're free to obey. Uh, but we're not under the system that, does not, that doesn't aid us to obedience. We're under a new system that gives us the ability could you um, just briefly give a definition for the covenant of works just to clarify the discussion? You know, I, I mean, I, I define personally a covenant is the terms established by God for a relationship with him. The relationship's always a goal for a covenant, and it always includes um, terms. It's the terms or the conditions of, of maintaining a relationship with the living God. And um, so it's, it's conditional, it's, it's a covenant, it's based upon the, the, the works, and the terms of the covenant works is simple, perfection. Because God's too holy to interact, he's too holy to have a relationship with sinners. He, the Bible says he can't even look upon sin. He's so holy he can't even look upon sinners, not, and especially have a relationship with sinners. And so that, that's the terms. Be you holy as I'm holy. And, and anything less than that, it will lead to a broken, cut off, alienation from God. And so a covenant of works is setting the terms, which is holiness, perfect righteousness. May I go back to the original question, Jared, and say, uh, Tom's right that we have to read the, the whole verse. And we have to read it in its context. Because what comes immediately after, for you, uh, sin shall not have dominion over you, for you're not under the law, but under grace. What then? Shall we sin because we are not under the law, but under grace? Certainly not. Paul goes on to expound it. We're, we're not to sin. All right, how do I know that I'm not sinning? Well, the end of the paragraph, just as you presented your members as slaves of uncleanness and lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, now present your members as slaves of righteousness for holiness. So we're told that our task in this life is to be a slave of righteousness or holiness. How do we know what that is? What is the standard by which we define it? Is it something that is fluid? Is it something that depends on culture? Is it something that I decide this is what righteousness is? Of course not. First um, John 3, 4 says sin is lawlessness. That, that's what sin is. It's a breaking of the law. So even in the context, we're told that righteousness is to be pursued. And righteousness must be defined in terms of God's standards. The kind of uh, pastoral implications of this, like in our lives, um, there are, that's a very good question because there's people that will say, that will look at that text and say, I'm just trying to take the text at face value. I'm not under law anymore. Like law at all. Law, plain law. Just, I'm not under it. I'm under grace. And, well, you know, then you say something like, well, children need to obey your parents. And you could see the problem, like, I'm not under law. The, the, Paul tells me I'm not under law, I'm under grace. The, the pastoral implications are really troubling. Our lives are really troubling. Because then you're a legalist anytime you tell somebody to do something. Because in a person's mind, if they're not understanding what's going on there in Romans, I, they're thinking, I'm not under law. And then 
they might even take what you said, um, Dr. Rinehan, that, you know, well, well, we need to live righteously. Okay, well, that means I need to be like Jesus, right? And so G Jesus, since I'm not under law, um, okay, Jesus, you know, and then, but, but then who is Jesus? And how, how, how does Jesus have any, like, what do we know? Well, Jesus fulfilled the law, is what we would say. And so there's a, when you're looking to Christ, you're looking to the, as a, as a moral standard, you're looking to the fulfillment of the law. So I think the question is very important, and I go to what we've all said here, is that Paul's talking about um, law as covenant. So there's a, there's a difference between law as covenant and law as just eternal moral law of God. And that makes sense of 2 Corinthians. So if you look at 2 Corinthians, and somebody says, it was a ministry of death carved on letters on stone, and it was coming to an end. And you say it was carved in letters on stone. What are we talking about? Well, we're talking about the Ten Commandments. Everybody knows that. You know, it's carved in letters on stone, and it's coming to an end. And so the Ten Commandments have come to an end. And you're like, whoa, what is that? You know, so to clarify, Paul's talking about the Ten Commandments in covenantal form. He's talking about as a ministry of death, as a ministry through which you could not obtain eternal life. That old covenant has come to an end. And so not the Ten Commandments themselves as an expression of the eternal moral law of God, but the Ten Commandments in its covenantal form has come to an end. I think all that's there in, in the Romans passage. The second question, does this high view of law and gospel we've been learning about apply to every sphere of life and creation? Yes. Yes. <laughs> All right. The answer is yes. All right. I'm going to preach a sermon in just a moment. Um, God's law and gospel in God's world. Are you just going to say yes? Yes. All right. So I'm going to try to tease that out in the sermon. All right. Um, are tithes a part of the moral law or the positive law? Should we give tithes on Sunday morning? That's a contentious question. <laughs> Plead the Go fifth. Ahead. Oh, thanks. <laughs> <laughs> I think the principle, the moral principle is that we are to give ourselves to God in all ways. Mm -hmm. Whether or not we are to, we are required to give 10% of our income, uh, I'm, I'm not willing to say that. I think that what Paul says is, when he writes to the Corinthians, as each one is able, according to your ability, you are to give. And I think it was C.S. Lewis who said, we can give a lot more than we think that we can. Mm -hmm. I think sometimes 10% is too little. Mm -hmm. uh, but I, won't, I wouldn't preach that to my people and say, you must give 12%, 15%, 20%, 50%. But I would say, you need to um, examine your circumstances and determine the best way that you can give to support the Lord's causes in your local church and then elsewhere if you're able to do so. So I, I'm not one of those who says, yes, you must tithe. Um, I would say you need to give according to your ability. Yeah, I, I'm in the same place with you. And, and whenever you compare the New Testament teaching on giving to Old Testament tithing laws, the New Testament supersedes it in so many ways. Um, the, the 2 Corinthians 8 passage, Paul uses the Macedonians as an example 
for the Corinthians, and he mm -hmm. said they gave according to their ability and indeed and beyond, beyond their ability. And what does that mean? Well, there's sacrifice involved in that somehow. You don't know all that it means. And then we're told to consider Christ, who though he was rich for your sakes became poor, so that you through his poverty might be made rich. What's the standard of giving? Well, just give until you've given as much as Christ gave. You know, I mean, it's, it's, you know, there's no way around the idea that all we are belongs to God and that we ought to honor him with all that we are. Mm -hmm. And um, Jesus said it's more blessed to give than to receive. So what other blessings are you trying not to receive from God? You know, I don't want to give. Mm -hmm. uh, well, what is it? Do we believe him or not? So I'm not, I'm not suggesting the questioner has this motive, but I've heard this used a lot. You know, man, you guys requiring 10%, that's crazy. Nobody can afford to give 10%. And that's just the wrong ground to stand on to even try to have the conversation because God owns us. God has given us everything we have. All the good gifts we enjoy come from him, and we ought to be good stewards of that. In the Old Testament, the way that was done is first fruits. There were a system of tithing responsibilities that demonstrated that, that helped their economy function as well as a nation. And here in the New Covenant, should we be doing any less? I mean, I, mm -hmm. I, I like to talk about it as 10% is a good a good floor. Starting place. Yeah. yeah, it's a good, it's not a good seating. That same passage, 2 Corinthians 8, Paul says, as you increase in all these other graces, see to it that you increase in this grace too. The grace of giving. That, I think we need to get that, man, to how can I grow in the grace of giving? How can I continue to give more and more and more? Um, if we get those things, the issue of tithing is not a, it's not a, something that you lay down as a law and you know, mm -hmm. either do it or you disobey. Yeah. Can I, can I suggest that there is a, a problem of terminology sometimes too? Because some people use tithe to mean 10% and some people use tithe more generically just to mean you should give an offering. Right. And so, you know, you have to parse out what an individual means when they use the word tithe because I've had people ask me that question and they mean offering and I think that they mean 10%. I think it needs, we need to remember too, moral law, positive law, all the positive laws in the Old Testament were based on the moral law. Mm -hmm. yeah. It's not like they're just arbitrary commands that don't make sense. Uh, they're, they're commands that were good in relationship to the circumstances they were. Even the, the command not to take a little baby and bowl it in the milk of its mother seems kind of odd. And we would... Goats. The goats. goats. Yeah. You say goats. Goats. Yeah. Little lamb. This yeah. day and age. This day and age. Yeah. Yeah. That's right. And so you, you have... I think babies so be forbidden. <laughs> but uh, you have, you know, have this, this, this positive command here that uh, we would take, that we could do that if we was in a desperate situation. But you see God's compassion and love in that positive command. And here we have the positive command, 10% in the Old Testament. Well, there's, that is based upon the moral law. There's something it's based in that transcends the 10%. And, and I, I, I'm with you guys. I think 10% is a good starting spot. You know, uh, so I would, um, I, I see that there, there's something moral about giving, but the percentage is something positive. Um, kind of plowing the, the law to think about the wisdom that is there, the goodness that is there that you've mentioned is helpful. And I think this is one of the things that we're neglecting in our own lives, like meditating on the law and thinking about the goodness of God in it. So related to, you brought up the don't boil a young goat in its mother's milk and, and tithing. I think it's, um, I think it's appropriate to look at don't boil a young goat in its mother's milk and say, well, why, why not? You know, like what is it God is teaching in there? 
and I think one of the things is the mother's, the, the mother goat's milk is meant to give life. And when you think even about women, like they're, to, they're to give life. They nurture children uh, in ways that men can't. So she was meant to give life, not take life. Don't use that which God don't use that which God created to give life and use it as an instrument of taking life. And it kind of teaches us about even um, womanhood, mothering, nurturing, those kind of things. And that would be the same thing with tithing. Like, think about it. What is it? You know, well, you're, giving, you're giving something back. It's dependence upon God, um, his provision, all belongs to him, serving him with everything that I am, including the whatever crops come from the ground and giving it to him. There's so we start to connect what God has revealed to us in his law with his goodness and wisdom in living in the world. Yeah, and, and you know, there's actually more to that commandment than that even. In that boiling the, the calf in the mother's milk was a Canaanite religious practice. That's how a, an animal sacrifice was often made. Mm. So the prohibition was to not enter into idolatrous worship by participating in such a thing, which then sends you back to the second commandment that worship is to be offered up to God according mm -hmm. to his principles. So, so that's how it's based in the moral law. It's even more profound. Yeah. Uh, wow. Yeah. Um, clearly, as we've been teaching on the law in this conference, we've been kind of expounding a high view of the law. Is this high view of the law and gospel effectively a baptistic theonomy? So maybe somebody briefly define what theonomy is and describe how it is or is not effectively a baptistic theonomy. That's, you're handling that. Let James handle that. Somebody handle that. James isn't here. I'm Jim. <laughs> <laughs> well, theonomy is, is just, the, it's a compound word. It means God's law. And so there have been theonomic systems that have argued that we are to uh, establish God's law in every area of life, even in theocratic ways, as we see in the Old Testament. The nation of Israel was a theocracy. They had laws given to them directly by God as a geopolitical entity. And very often, theonomy today is, um, well, I shouldn't say it. Historically, theonomy has been uh, identified with that theocratic vision wanting to establish. I, New England Puritanism, in my estimation, was an attempt at that. And historically, for my money, had the best opportunity probably of any, anywhere that I know of if it was going to work, to see it work. And it didn't work. It was, in many ways, a colossal failure. Uh, speaking as a Baptist, I would mm -hmm. underscore colossal on that for what they did to the Baptists. Um, so if, you're, if we can separate theocracy is the nation of Israel in the Old Testament, geopolitical entity to which God gave, he ordained laws from the idea of God's law, theonomy, and how should God's law apply. God's law should apply everywhere. But as we apply it everywhere, we're not looking for the establishment of a geopolitical nation that will operate as a theocracy because the kingdom of God is in us. It's spiritual, it's eternal, and it is not limited by borders, and it's not uh, governed by magistrates. So, yeah, there's much in uh, the language or the teaching of, of some theonomists 
that we can learn from. I've learned a great deal on economics and education and other things from those who would even argue that, yeah, we need to see a theocracy set up because they're trying to apply God's law in every area of life. You know, what area of life do we not want to see God's law applied? But we, I, I, there's a danger. I was talking earlier to a brother here. I mean, I won't, I've got walls built up because of the recognition of the, uh, the limitations of human government in a fallen world. I think as a Baptist, the best we can hope for is a free church and a free state. And if we get that, then man, you know, give us opportunity to preach, to teach, to evangelize, disciple. And as that happens under the blessing of God, we will see righteousness right. increase. And praise God for that, because when nations increase in righteousness, they increase in the obvious blessings of God that go with that. But that falls short of the vision of some of my theonomic acquaintances, friends, and writers that I've read who have a vision for a theocracy in a geopolitical way that I just, I, I don't think the Bible gives us direction to go there. I think that that helps the positive moral law distinctions helps in this area as well. What I want from our government is them to enforce moral law. You know, the, the morality that we call it natural law that is written in our conscience. Just enforce that. And, and hold up a whole God, and then every, every citizen's under that. But I don't want the government telling me that I can't that I have to baptize but my the children. The problem, here's a struggle that we've had. Jerry, yeah. <laughs> you're probably going to go ahead and say it. You go I was just going to say, um, you said you wanted to enforce moral law. I, I, let me add to, to this question that I think that this is, I think this is an important topic to discuss. And quite honestly, if you use the word theonomy, everybody goes, ah, what are we going to do? No, what? Yeah, yeah. We need to discuss this because our culture is, <laughs> we've operated on Judeo-Christian principle. I think that's undeniable. And now we know that's changing with Roe v. Wade and with Obergefell, the sexual revolution in the 60s. We just know it. And people are starting to go, okay, like, uh, you know, we have to go full-fledged theonomy in the sense that I'm, I'm going to think I need to cut, copy, paste civil law out of the Old Testament and drop it down in the society now. Well, no. Um, but but should, should our president believe and obey Jesus? Yes. Should the Supreme Court believe and obey Jesus? Yes. If somebody's in your church and they're a legislator, should they believe and obey Jesus? Yes. Should they believe and obey Jesus in all things? Yes. And so um, that conversation needs to happen. And I think, I think we're actually, we are probably trying to work out um, where to draw the lines in this. So when you said, all that to say, this is, I think this is a good discussion to have. When you say, I wanted to enforce the moral law, well, have no other gods before me is moral law. Mm -hmm. And so I know some guys want to say, let's do the second table, not the first table. Um, I'm not, I don't know. I'm, I'm not, I don't think I'm fully there. I think there's still something about um, obligation going on, but we don't, we're not saying that you should be uh, thrown in prison if you don't go to church on Sunday and worship Yahweh, mm -hmm. you know, but it is moral law. So I think we're trying to figure yeah, out how to why, do this. I mean, why not? That's the challenge is where, do, how do you draw the line? Where do you draw it? And I, you know, free church, free state, that to me seems to be the best we can hope for in a fallen world until Jesus comes. And where we have that, then we can proclaim with the freedom without the impingement of the government, we can proclaim to people, you must have no other gods than, than God. You, you must serve the Lord God only. But I don't want the President of the United States signing a law into uh, the civil code 
that says, if you do not worship the God of the Bible, then you're going to be beheaded or you're going to be put in prison or you're going to not be able to work or whatever um, because of the nature of the kingdom of God. So, yeah, there's a lot of... And I, and I think in that conversation, I think like... 99.9% of any Christians that are thinking about these things would agree with you, right? Like, I don't think anybody's, or not many. We could go there. We have gone there. So I'm not saying it's not a real deal. I'm just saying in our conversations now, I'm, I'm imagining everybody's going to go, yeah, like you shouldn't be signing in that. And but so how do we get, how, what are we talking about then? I, I, I think there is, a, there is a sense, and this is going to come out, I think, in the sermon I'm going to deliver. We, we need to proclaim Jesus Christ. He is indeed king of heaven and earth. And we need to make sure we got qualifications. But we cert- I know that we all want, I mean, we pray for the civil magistrate because the Bible tells us to pray for the civil magistrate. And then praying for the civil magistrate, what are we going to do? I mean, we're going to include in that, may they be born again through God's word. And may they honor you. May they fear you. Um, may what they do in their work as the civil magistrate will be pleasing in your sight. So just that much. I, I would love to see the church kind of say, yeah, you know what, we do need to be a prophetic voice about uh, who God is and how we're to live in the world. So, Is that all? <laughs> huh? Is that all? Yeah. We, we, all? we went a long way around without answering the question, I think. But, uh, but it's, a difficult, it's a difficult issue, and, and Baptists have struggled with this historically. Uh, I'm thinking about Isaac Bacchus, who tried to, to draw the lines and did the second table of the law. And that makes sense, but again, the question is why? You know, why? Why that and not the first four commandments? And what about blue laws? You know, I grew up with blue laws and delighted when things were closed on Sunday. That, you, know, you just couldn't normally do your normal routines. Well, and that was legislated. It was legislated, however, because it had been a part of, it had grown out of a culture where that was so impacted by the understanding of God's word that had come through revival times and had been advanced, that those things just happened. It, but it became encoded in the civil law as well. So I, I don't know. It's a complicated issue. I don't, know, I don't know exactly how to define the rationale for where you draw the lines and what the limitations of the civil magistrate are. I, uh, it's tough. It's tough. I mean, we could keep talking about it in, the, in the sense that there's, there is always a standard. And at the end of the day, when a judge is making a decision about, you know, how long a person should stay in prison, um, he or she is making those decisions in wisdom or not in wisdom. You know, it's like just on that front, um, that's an interesting way for me to think. And I guess I haven't, I haven't thought in those terms as much. Like growing up, I just kind of thought, well, judges do what judges do, and the Bible doesn't have much to say about what they do. It's like, oh, no, no, the Bible has a lot to say about what they do. And again, I don't know if that's answering the question about theonomy, but that is open. I'm seeing more of that kind of conversation going on, and I think it probably should kind of go on. Well, having spoken about uh, theonomy, how would you distinguish a reformed view of the law from a new covenant view of the law or a dispensationalist view of the law? Uh, well, dispensationalism, the, one of the problems with dispensationalism is that it, um, 
it puts various periods, dispensations, historical dispensations, into boxes that are um, made of uh, iron. And there's no flow from one to another. Something fails, God changes plan, introduces a new dispensation. And the, the system, now there are varieties. I'm speaking in generalities, there are varieties. Um, historically, the, though with uh, Lewis Berry Chafer or, or the old Schofield Bible or something like that, would have viewed um, the old covenant as an entity which in itself was, is completely gone and something new has arrived. Um, and so they draw hard and fast lines between the different epochs that they identify in the history of scripture. New covenant theology, uh, I think the failure there is to make the distinction that I was trying to make this morning mm -hmm. between two kinds of law. They, they, they treat law as if it's monolithic mm -hmm. rather than nuanced. And in treating it as monolithic, uh, they, they would come to a text like, I think Jared, you're the one who quoted it from 2 Corinthians 3 um, about the, the, the law and it's gone, the Ten Commandments. They would quote that text and see, see, it's, it, it is a monolith and it's therefore passed away. And if something isn't repeated in the New Testament, uh, it therefore becomes, uh, if it's not repeated in the New, New Covenant, New Testament, it's not um, required of Christians to, to follow that. Now, that ends up in some absurdities. I think real problems. Um, ask the question. Uh, no, let, let me back up. Let me just say, I'm not sure that the advocates of New Covenant theology have thought through the implications of their system. For example, the atonement. When Christ died, what law did he die to satisfy? Um, some New Covenant proponents have argued that, that the law is whatever law happens to be in place where you live at that specific time. Uh, th there's, a, there's a book that actually advocates this in print. So it comes down to, in some ways, speed limits. Um, if the speed limit in Texas is 75, but the speed limit in, in, which it is in some places, there's actually one road that was 85, yeah, out down near Austin. Um, and the speed limit in Florida is 70, and you go 71 in Florida, but 71 in, in Texas, now you've broken the law that Christ died for, or not, just because you happen to be in a different state. That's an absurdity. What, what law did Christ die to satisfy? What, what wrath of God did he propitiate? Why was God's wrath necessitated? And uh, the only answer that you can give to that is a moral law that is consistent for all men at all times. So I'm not convinced that the system has been around, around long enough to really think through all of the implications of, of what it means. Yeah, one of the implications of that would be if Christ dies for, to satisfy the law of the new covenant, well then how does Christ's death apply to those who are under the old covenant? That's right, that's right, yeah. yeah. Or, or even, how does Christ's, uh, how would Christ's atonement satisfy for those who were outside Israel but had saving faith? Because we do have examples in the Old Testament of Gentiles who in one way or another had saving faith in Christ. If they're outside of the old covenant, the Mosaic stipulation, how were they saved? Mm -hmm. If that's, if, so you, I, you run into those kind of problems. In the, in the conversation I've had, it, it seems like there's like new covenant, it's a big spectrum, so there might be like mm -hmm. new covenant-ish, kind of, kind of, but in the conversations I've had with guys that would be maybe new covenant-ish, like a soft new, new, new covenant, it goes back to that fundamental distinction is, is I think most of them would say the Ten Commandments, um, 
are contained in uh, the Old Covenant. And so because the Old Covenant is gone, we're not under it, we're not under the Ten Commandments. And so what we do is we look to the New Testament commands, we, we look to, and we have nine of them, so they usually hold to nine of the Ten Commandments, but we don't have the Sabbath, and so you usually don't have the Sabbath in that system. So I, I think the thing that helped me as I was working through all of this was seeing that there's a difference between the eternal moral law of God expressed, summarized in the Ten Commandments, and then that eternal moral law of God expressed in the Ten Commandments as a covenant um, through which you would um, yeah. achieve uh, what God had covenanted to you in that covenant. So the covenant can come to an end. The eternal moral law of God remains. And, and, and you know, this is not directly related to the question, but let me follow up on you. I think all ten are repeated in the New Testament. Because the passage that you're in in 1 Timothy chapter 1 lists the commandments in order. And if you follow out the sense of the word profane, in the Old Testament, it has direct reference to the violation of the Sabbath principle in the Old Testament. It's very interesting, and it comes forth in Paul's list in 1 Timothy chapter 1. Plus, you have the very strong argument from Hebrews 3 and 4. There remains, therefore, Sabbath for the people of God, and it's sabbatismos. It's a word that was used in the Septuagint of the Old Testament to speak of Sabbath keeping. Not of the day, but of Sabbath keeping. Now, that's a, that's a whole long, wonderful argument to get into with Hebrews 3 and 4 and the difference between katapausis rest where all of a sudden the writer changes from katapausis to sabbatismos and it's striking when you read it in the original you're, you're conditioned to see rest, 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 Sabbath keeping. What's going on? Why is he saying that? Um, but take too long to do all that exegesis. So I would argue that even in the New Testament you have the fourth commandment. And I think part of, part of the problem with New Covenant theology is they look at the Old Testament law as only dealing with external obedience. They don't, they, all the passages that says, love the Lord God with all your heart, mind, and soul, they want to minimize the depth of the commandments, the, the heart issues of the commandments. And they look at the, the Old Testament as just purely temporal, temp, basically all dealing with external obedience. And the moral law is dealing with more than just don't steal. It, it has that 10th commandment, Thou shalt not covet. And it's dealing with a heart issue. It's dealing with, you know, what you think. And so what they view is that they got the law of Moses is one level of righteousness. But that is superseded by a higher level of righteousness given to us by the law of Christ. So they want to separate the law of Moses as dealing with kind of just this external regulations. Dealing with a dual uh, political entity, you know, dealing with the outward behavior. We're going to police you outwardly, but we can't police the heart. And but Christ comes and he says, you've been, you've been told, don't do this, but I'm going to give you a new law, a, a deeper law. And then my law is dealing with the conscience. My law is dealing with the heart. And so Christ is elevating the, the standard of righteousness in his law. It's a, it's a fuller manifestation or actually the real law, if you would, the highest form of the law. And Moses is only just external. And of course, you have to butcher a lot of Old Testament texts to come to that conclusion because the, the 10th commandment tells you it's more than external. It's with the mm -hmm. heart. And the passage 
Moses says, you know, to love God with all your heart, mind, and soul. And all the Pharisees understood that the commandments could be summarized in this, to love God with all your heart, mind, and soul, and to love your neighbor as yourself. So there, that's why we have to separate the moral law from the positive law, because the moral law is a reflection of the, of the triune relationship of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Their eternal relationship with one another. And this is a reflection, and this is the standard that God holds himself to. And it's the standard that he holds all his covenant people to. And that, that uh, was given to us uh, in the law of Moses, the Ten Commandments. And Christ doesn't come and give us a new law. He comes and, and explains what that law really means. Hmm. And so. Well, that all flows very well into this next question. What do we do with the Sabbath if we don't keep it as the Israelites did? What principles can we apply to our lives from it? Rest, holy rest, not just cessation of labor, and works of charity and necessity. Uh, I like to, to say, if you do everything you should on the Sabbath, you don't have to worry about what you, what you shouldn't do. You should worship God. You should rest from the labors of the other six days. And you should do works of charity. And uh, if on the way to church your tire blows out, you need to change it. But don't um, go into your garage on Sunday afternoon and um, rotate your tires. That's not necessary. So you do works of necessity. You do works of charity. You help those. You fellowship with other believers. You worship God. You fill the day. Yeah, and call it a delight. I mean, we, everybody complains about not having enough time. You know, boy, I really wish I could read my Bible more. I wish I could read good books. I wish I could memorize scripture well, you know, God's given us one day in seven that if we would take advantage of it and try to keep it holy in that sense, set apart, we would discover time that we often think we do not have. And just the, the privilege of worship and being together with God's people, being reminded that we have a Savior who shed his blood for us. We, we have eternity assured for us. I mean, our hearts get set upon that everlasting rest that is ours in Christ. And so every Lord's Day, we are reminded of that. We get to celebrate that. And uh, Sunday, uh, practically speaking, I would encourage every Christian to build their lives around a good, healthy church and build their schedules around the Lord's Day. Absolutely. Amen. You do that, and you're, you're not going to be able to go too far wrong. Mm -hmm. I mean, because you're, you're going to keep being pulled back mm -hmm. by those rhythms and by those relationships. And th that's a joy. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's a joy. Um, I don't know when it was that it, that it clicked for me. At some point, I kind of grew up always thinking weekend, you know, weekend. And the weekend was kind of Friday, Saturday, Sunday. And Monday was the first day of the week. And the Bible talks about Sunday being the first day of the week. And that that was cool and just my week and the way I began to lead my life and then lead my family. So the Sabbath is the first day of the week and it is the day that Jesus walked out of the tomb and that should be flavoring the way that we are remembering the Sabbath day and keeping it holy. And so this is a day of joy and gladness. Uh, this is a day we remember that Jesus is making all things new. This is a day where we are worshiping Almighty God and praying that uh, we would see his glory spread all over this world. It's a day where we are being fed uh, God's word, resting from the labor that we did last week and preparing then by God's word and spirit to go out into the world this following week and work for him. So it's really interesting how 
that rhythm of life, owing God our time. That was so good how you said that, Dr. Renahan. Uh, because often the Sabbath, we get, we get screwed up on the Sabbath because we're not working hard on the other six days. Mm. You know, so we're not diligent there, and then it's kind of backed up. And so it's just a good little check. It's like, okay, I really want to rest uh, well, and because I'm going to really work hard the next six days, and I'm going to be doing that uh, for the Lord who is risen from the dead. So then... Is it a sin to work on the Lord's Day? You know, what if I really enjoy working on my car? What if I really enjoy doing the work that I would normally do on the other six days? And it just doesn't really feel like work to me. You know, how would you define work? And is it a sin then to work on the Sabbath? Not if you're a fireman. Or a preacher. <laughs> or a police force. We'd say, so I, I, I want to think there works in necessity. So that's why I mentioned firemen, you know, that kind of thing. If you work in the ER, it's a work of necessity. So that kind of thing would be first. And um, beyond that, I would think, you know, what is work? Well, you want to recreate, recreation, recreate on, on the Lord's Day too. So I would, I would encourage, I think it would be wise, good, right, biblical to be resting from the standard work that you do. What is that? It's going to be different if you're retired. It's going to be different if you're a housewife. You know, so my wife is a housewife. And so, you know, my day to try to really lend a hand here. You know, if there's a work of necessity and I'm out, she might do something. But I'm trying to think intentionally. She's been raising these kids and teaching these kids all week. And so, you know, that's going to affect the way um, I'm trying to lead my family and make sure she has a day of rest on that day. So there are, there, I think there are implications and applications that become situational specific. How does the distinction between positive law and moral law inform the debate between paedo-baptists and credo-baptists? Can the spirituality of the new covenant be maintained in light of the positive law since positive law is accompanied by sanctions? I think spirituality meaning regenerate covenant membership. Can that be maintained given the distinction between positive and moral law? Could you read that again, please? Yeah. <laughs> It is one and a half. <laughs> How does the distinction between positive law and moral law inform the debate between paedo-baptists and credo-baptists? Can the spirituality of the new covenant be maintained in light of positive law since positive law is accompanied by sanctions? I think the idea behind this question is when we have positive law in the new covenant, such as baptism, the Lord's Supper, those are accompanied by sanctions which require you know, earthly penalties if, if broken. If, if so, how can we maintain then the spiritual nature of the new covenant? Yeah, there are two questions there, really. Uh, the first one is we have a difference with our pedo-baptist brothers and sisters over how positive law is to be applied under the new covenant. And uh, Blackwood and Toombs and most other well-informed Baptists would argue that the, the transfer from circumcision to baptism is a faulty transfer. That circumcision belonged to the old covenant and it ended when the old covenant ended. And that baptism belongs to the new covenant and it is governed by the principles that are laid down in the new covenant, not the old. When we look at the, the argument that transfers circumcision to baptism, we, we see that the principle of baptism is not made in the New Testament, it's made in the Old Testament and then brought over. And we protest that that's, that's not the way historical covenants are to be viewed. 
each positive law within a covenant is to be defined by that covenant, not by other covenants. So that, that's the difference that we see. Um, of course, I have my position. I'm a Baptist. And I, so I think my pedo-Baptist brothers are wrong. I lived with them for 20 years. You know, I worked in a Presbyterian environment for 20 years. And I, and I love them and I appreciate their view. But I think that they miss the point of the distinction between moral and positive at that point. You, you even have somebody like B.B. Warfield who acknowledges in print that there's no place in the New Testament that demands the practice of infant baptism. In order to support the practice, you have to go to the old. And we protest. We protest. We say, we believe in the Old Testament. We believe we need to have the Old Testament. We ought to preach from the Old Testament. We ought to know it. It has a lot to say to us. But we live under the New Covenant, so we define our positive laws of the New Covenant by New Covenant revelation. So that's, that's our difference there. How the second question then seems, and I don't mean to hog the floor here, but the second question um, is a question that each church has to wrestle with. Um, I think, I'm going to get a little controversial here, and I hope no one takes me out and throws stones at me. I, I have a very high view of our responsibility to those who would be baptized and to those who would take the Lord's Supper. Okay? We, most of us probably all believe in fencing the table because we recognize that the Lord's table is a dangerous uh, ordinance to participate in. Paul says that in 1 Corinthians 11. If you don't examine yourselves properly, many of you are ill and some of you are asleep. A euphemism for die. It's a dangerous thing. And that's why we protect people when we fence the table. I would argue the same principle needs to apply to the baptismal pool. That we need to be very careful about those that we put into that pool and make a profession of faith. Because when they are baptized, they are saying before all of these witnesses, but there's another witness who's present who's far more important, and that's the Lord in heaven. And by their baptism, they're saying, Jesus is Lord. We hear them say that. He takes it seriously. And if they don't have the right to be making that confession, if there's no true faith in their heart, they are putting themselves in grave danger by, by saying Jesus is Lord when the Lord in heaven knows that that's not true mm. in their lives. See, I, I think we need to fence the pool in the same way that we fence the table and protect it. Because, it, 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 you know, I met a guy once who said to me, I'll baptize anything that moves. I won't tell you what major, biggest American Baptist group he belongs to. <laughs> it's the biggest one, but I'm not going to tell you which one, so don't try to guess. Did it rhyme with ABC? No, it doesn't rhyme with ABC. The, no, I'm not going any further than that. I, you know. um, any, he'll baptize anything that moves. Well, that's, that's a really dangerous principle, because if a person as best as we are able to determine, doesn't have a credible profession of faith, they don't deserve to be put into the baptismal pool. And you know, let me, let me also say this controversially. Our pedo-baptist friends agree with us on this principle. Because in a missionary situation, they practice believer's baptism too. Right? When their missionaries go into a new culture and people come to faith in Christ, they baptize them as believers, and they add their children. But it's still a believer's baptism for them. And they won't just take anybody who walks up to them and say, I'd like to be baptized. They ask them the same questions that we ask. Uh, tell me about your faith in Christ. Uh, tell me about why you want to be baptized. So they interview in the same way that we do. We have that in common 
with everybody who practices baptism. For them in a missionary situation, for us in the, the, the circumstances that we understand. So there are sanctions. We, we, we need to keep people away from the table. We need to keep people away from the baptistry who don't belong there. So when do you get into the controversial part? Okay. <laughs> Thank you, brother. I, I really appreciate that. Thank you. Well, not everybody, you know, likes, likes that. But yeah. maybe, maybe, maybe I can help make it more controversial. Uh, <laughs> so when I hear you, you say that, um, fencing the table, obviously very important. And when somebody comes to the table and partakes of the Lord's Supper in a worthy manner, maybe somebody who is not a believer, who doesn't have true faith, they partake of that covenant ordinance, and then they receive the curses associated with that covenant ordinance the, the, that are surrounding that, the sanctions of that covenant ordinance. They then receive the covenant curses on themselves. I, I could hear a Presbyterian brother saying, well, yeah, absolutely, they are a member of the covenant, therefore they receive the curses of the covenant. You can't receive the curses of the covenant unless you are a member of the covenant. And so I think that really gets at the heart of the question that was being asked. If there is positive law, if there is moral law, if there are sanctions in this way, how do we guard the, the pure spirituality of the new covenant? How did the apostles do it in Acts chapter 8 with Simon the magician? Okay. He, he made a profession of faith that they accepted and he was baptized and they received him. But afterwards he demonstrated that he didn't have true faith and so he was cut off from their midst. But they received him. That's what our task is. Those who are able to make that credible profession of faith. Did they make a mistake? I would argue no, they didn't make a mistake. But they acted consistently when the lack of faith in Simon the Magician was evidenced by mm. his lifestyle. And that's what we are to do as well. Was he ever truly part of the covenant community? No, he wasn't. Mm -hmm. You see, from an earthly perspective, he was. But from a heavenly perspective, he was not mm -hmm. because he didn't have true faith. Mm -hmm. So I think you have to look at it in two ways. So far as we can tell, every, if we're doing our job as, as elders, so far as we can tell, everyone in our congregation is a professing believer mm -hmm. in Jesus Christ. But when the Lord looks at our congregation, he might say, all of you but that one. But you can't know that yeah. until that person reveals himself. I think the whole idea of church discipline for unbelief as evidenced by Philip in the New Testament, perfectly answers that question. That's good. Dr. Renahan in Romans uh, chapter no, 7. It's somebody else's turn now. Somebody else can answer this question. This one was specifically given to you, but in Romans chapter 7, verses 7 through 9, is Paul referring to the moral law or positive law or both? Well, since he says, um, I would not have known covetousness unless the law had said, you shall not covet, which is the 10th commandment. He's applying the moral law, first and foremost, to his own life, to his conscience, and to his um, conscious understanding of the problem of sin in his own life. Satisfied? Did Jeff ask that question? <laughs> no, he did not. <laughs> no. He looked at you as if, you know, are you satisfied? <laughs> I, I like the answer. That's good. But I didn't ask it. <laughs> okay. I didn't think you did. Um, here's another question. It seems from the 1689 Confession, Chapter 6, Paragraphs 2 and 3, that the writers had in view both Adam and Eve as federal heads. 
what is the what what's the case here? <laughs> so, and and the person who asked this question actually gives both paragraphs, and so I'll read those. Paragraph two says, "Our first parents, by the sin, fell from their original righteousness and communion with God, and we in them, there whereby death came upon all, all become all becoming dead in sin and wholly defiled in all the faculties and parts of soul and body." And then paragraph two three says. They, being the root and by God's appointment standing in the room instead of all mankind, the guilt of the sin was imputed and corrupted nature conveyed to all their posterity descending from them by ordinary generation. Being now conceived in sin and by nature children of wrath, the servants of sin, subject of death, and all other miseries, spiritual, temporal, eternal, unless the Lord Jesus set them free. Now very clearly it's speaking plurally of Adam and Eve as those in whom we are represented. Are both Adam and Eve our federal heads or is just Adam, our federal head. Yeah, can I answer that one again? Uh, this is going to be, I'm going to let them start talking from now on, okay. Um, in early November, we had the Southern California Reformed Baptist Pastors Conference, and I had a session specifically to address that question. So if, if anybody wants a long answer to it, they can go, I don't know, to Sermon Audio or, or wherever and find that. The short answer is, you'll find that kind of language in all of the confessions of the Puritan era. It's a standard trope that they use. And the reason is not because they viewed Adam and Eve together as federal heads of humanity, but rather because there were problems, first with Arminianism, but even more problematically with Socinians. The Socinians were a rationalistic but also biblicist 16th and 17th century group who were viewed as the greatest threat to Christianity in England in the 17th century. That's how many Puritans viewed them. And they were growing in their uh, prominence and in people going over to the Socinian ideas. One of the tenets of Socinianism is that there is no transmission of sin from parents to children, from all the way back to Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve were free agents who were able to do what was right or wrong, the law was not written on their hearts, they were moral neuters, and we are just like them. We, we have no relationship to them. So you're, if you're a sinner, it's because you've chosen to be a sinner, not because you have original sin that has come to you through Adam. So the, the, the Reformed confessions speak in the plural rather than the singular to emphasize not the federal headship of the two, but the necessity of transmission of original sin from Adam and Eve to all of their descendants. It, it's, it's an argument of descent, not an argument of headship. Mm. And so that's why it's pluralized. But you can hear the whole, the whole lecture, it was about an hour, that I did last month. Someone is hoping that you would define heresy. I know it when I see it. So, uh, it. It would be deviation. There's a definition of it actually given in the statement on social justice in the gospel that I would commend. Uh, that I'm not going to get it just right on that. But it's a deviation from those points of teaching in the scripture that will take you away from Christ. And so there, I distinguish between un unorthodoxy or heterodoxy and heresy. Now, heresy is, is that that makes a divide that will lead you away from the salvation in Christ reconciling you to God. And so you can have errors that 
I wouldn't label heresy. That you know, you might be heterodox, might be unorthodox, uh, might be on some issue where you wouldn't even want to use that language, but it's not going to keep you from God. So these are these are salvific types mm-hmm. of of teachings in the Bible that you get wrong, that when you follow them will lead you to hell. That's why I take that. I've got a statement here, statement on social justice. We affirm that heresy is a denial of the departure, a denial of or departure from a doctrine that is essential to the Christian faith. We further affirm that heresy often involves the replacement of key essential truths with variant concepts or the elevation of non-essentials to the status of essentials. To embrace heresy is to depart from the faith once delivered to the saints and thus to be on a path towards spiritual destruction. We affirm that the accusation of heresy should be reserved for those departures from Christian truth that destroy the weight-bearing doctrines of the redemptive core of Scripture. We affirm that accusations of heresy should be accompanied with clear evidence of such destructive beliefs. That's pretty good. I'm glad that you brought up the statement on social justice in the gospel. Uh, I think the final question to you all this afternoon is, how is it that a right view of the law, a right understanding of the law can help us to kind of navigate these issues that evangelicalism has been facing when it comes to issues like social justice, when it comes to issues like intersectionality, critical theory, and the like? Yeah, it's, it's what's right and what's wrong. What constitutes righteousness, what constitutes sin? What we're being told today is, look at all these bad things in the world, and this is what they mean, and this is how we got there, and this is what you must do about it. And anytime people use the words ought, must, or should, you need to be willing to ask, says who? You know, by what standard? That's the whole point of of the emphasis we've been trying to give to this. God is the one who gets to determine and has determined what is right, what is wrong, what is good, what is bad, what is true, what is false in his world. And you might think, but all these bad things that I've had to live with and all these things that aren't afforded to me, that's got to be immoral somehow. Maybe not. Maybe not. God's the one who gets to determine that. He has determined it. And the only way we know how he's determined it is by looking at what the Bible says. This is why I... I, I believe this more strongly today than I ever have, that at the bottom of all this, this horrible confusion that we're going through culturally that's coming into the church is a failure to appreciate what the Bible says about the law and the gospel. If we would get straight on this, if we, if we just memorized the Ten Commandments and really believed the Ten Commandments and meditated on what those commandments actually govern as terms of righteousness and then violation in terms of sin, a lot of the stuff that's gone on under the umbrella of social justice would be non-starters. Christians would be immunized against it. But we've just lost these basic foundational understandings of right and wrong according to what God says. And I think it's Jared, maybe you said this in your message, it's not a question of if you're going to have a standard, it's which standard you're going to have. Everybody's going to have a standard of morality, rightness, wrongness, good, bad, true, false. Uh, And if you don't Try to grapple with what has been revealed and let God say what is accurate about all those areas, then you're setting yourself up to be played by the most eloquent person who comes along and can work your emotions and your thoughts into seeing what he's telling you is there. I remember many, many moons ago getting to know you. 
And we were talking once, and you used that phrase. Anytime somebody says should, you ask, says who? And I remember you said that, and I was like, oh, it, it just dawned on me how much I was being shoulded in my life. And everybody knows that. I mean, every one of us know that. We should people in a whole lot of ways, you know, subtle ways, direct ways, this, that. You shouldn't be telling that story, man. <laughs> By what standard? Um, so that was so helpful to see, okay, now I understand. And I, I think, so when it comes to social justice, um, there is the Christian faith, and then there is secular humanism. And you have, in the Christian faith, there's biblical justice. God defines what's right and what's wrong. In secular hu humanism, you have social justice. Man defines what's right and wrong. And so, you know, this is connected to the whole, how does it relate to God's world? How does it, what do we want to, you know, what, God's law and society stuff. But that is very clear to me that that's happening and it's and it's kind of getting blurry and and then you're starting to call things unjust that are actually just and you frame mischief with a law and I mean it just goes on and on and on so yeah they're on a collision course and we need to come back to saying by what standard in that same vein, as men and women created in the image of God, as those who have the law of God engraved in our consciences, can we not look at some of these, I don't know if you want to call them human ideologies, and the, the shoulds and the should nots that they give us and say, oh yes, well that should that we have been given by a human ideology is a reflection of God's law. And so yes, we can gain things from these human ideologies because they are a reflection of God's law. And so we are validated in, in holding to some of these things like critical theory and intersectionality. Says who? <laughs> uh, you know, yeah, there's general revelation. I mean, God's, there is common <coughs> grace, and that's true. Um, but what is being proposed by these ideologies embedded in the ideology is godlessness embedded in it. it it is created by those who say there is no god this world is all that there is now that doesn't mean everything they say or think is necessarily false but it does mean you ought to be putting up some pretty uh, serious filters as you receive what they have to say and telling you how the world works it's God's world. They don't even believe God exists. And so they're going to tell us this is good, this is bad, this is right, this is wrong, this is true, this is false. Realities that exist in God's world when they don't even believe mm -hmm. God created the world. They think this world is all there is. It, it is the height, it, I'll do it as kindly as I can. It is the height of naivete to say, oh, here's some good tools we can take from these folks that deny the very creator in whose creation we live. Mm -hmm. It's not that it's not that an, an unbeliever doesn't have a conscience, have the law written on his uh, conscience and mindful of that, and then by general revelation can rightly understand things and say things that are true and hold to laws that are true. All of that's true. Um, but understanding where this ideology came from is very important. And when he says godlessness, it is, I've often talked about like social justice critical theory is a really good attempt um, at equality and justice by people who don't believe that God exists. So imagine that world. Just imagine that world. Okay, so we're all going to aim at equality. And uh, you know what? Women don't get to do everything that men do. And so that's wrong. 
I don't have a I don't have a divine standard that tells me that that, that it's actually appropriate that, that women don't preach in pulpits. I don't have that objective standard. So I'm just looking at the world. There's no God. And I think it makes sense to me. We all have a sense of equality and women should get to do everything that men do. And so um, since they're not, well, we're going to put them in that position and that will be what is just. That's what the, uh, and, and we have kind of been breathing the air for so long. We're like, well, yeah, I mean, maybe they should be able to do everything. Yeah. And men ought to be able to have babies. Yeah. No thanks. I, I have a background. In that's the, the argument. I mean, that's, going yeah. on, that's what's going on today. I have a background in the mental health field. And uh, when I was in college, um, a Bible college, we were learning Christian psychology, where you're taking a psychology, which is the wisdom of the world, based upon the principles of atheism and evolution. And you, psychology, the, the, the term was coined by an atheist as a replacement for religion, understanding that there's emotional problems. But if you don't have a God, and if we are just evolved beings, then ultimately we're matter. And all of our emotional problems are a side effect of our bodies. And so when you have a behavioral problem, it's not a sin issue. It's a physical problem that needs to be treated physically. And thus they created like terms such as chemical imbalance. Not that you take a test to determine this. It's just a, it has to be a physical issue behind your sin problem. And, and all this is in psychology. It makes sense from an atheistic worldview that we got to explain these things from a materialistic position. However, how in the world did the church think it was wise to integrate psychology based upon this foundation into Christianity? But that's exactly what they did. They blended the Bible with a, uh, a system that is, it is incompatible with the Bible. And tried to blend it together. And I think that we're seeing that that was going on in the 60s and 70s. And I, I mean, I was taught that. And I think we're seeing a lot of that today. But not just with psychology, but with every area of life. Well, thank you so much, gentlemen. Please give these gentlemen a hand.